When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. And hi, listeners. Well, another week, another Wonder Woman. Yes, and here in Los Angeles, I'm very happy to uh, have you in my hometown. And believe me, I'm happy to be here because it's 19 degrees in New York City right now. (laughs) It's like 75 here. Anyway, we just finished chatting with actress and activist Laverne Cox. It was so nice to come in on a Sunday morning and spend some time with us. I've interviewed Laverne before, and she is so smart. She's compassionate. She's thoughtful. She's extraordinarily well-versed on the issues. And per usual, it was a real treat talking to her today. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, like a lot of people, I was first introduced to her in her role as Sophia on Netflix's show, Orange is the New Black. Which is one of my favorite shows. She steals the show Oh my God, she's one of my favorite characters. I just love her in that show. And she's also been in some reality shows like I Want to Work for Diddy, which is something (laughs) I I know know. one of your favorite shows that was on VH1 (laughs) back in 2008. (laughs) Yeah, these people just got to live my dream. (laughs) Anyway, if you know Laverne, you likely also know that she's transgender. She's a prominent spokeswoman and activist for LGBTQ causes. And she actually helped to inspire you, Katie, to make your documentary on gender for National Geographic, That's didn't right. she? That's right. She did. And as you'll hear in the course of our conversation, it was all because of an encounter we had on my talk show a few years ago. And she has since really become my guiding light as I've set out on a journey to understand and educate myself about transgender issues. And I think this conversation is for everyone, but for our listeners who need a primer or even just a refresher on being trans in America, what it means, I'd highly recommend watching Katie's documentary, Gender Revolution. I'd say that even if you weren't my Thank pal you, Brian. and my co-host. <laughs> or you could check out the corresponding episode of this podcast, which is number 19 from back in February of last year. We began our conversation this morning in Los Angeles by talking about how Laverne and I met about four years ago. 
We have an interesting backstory, if you will. (laughs) So, So just for our listeners, and I'm not embarrassed to talk about it because I think it's important to own the fact that I screwed up and what I learned from my mistakes mm-hmm. with your help. But uh, a few years ago on my talk show, I was doing something with the right spirit of trying to help people understand transgender issues, which really wasn't being talked about very much at that moment in time. I think it was back in 2014. Yes. And now Car- four years ago. I know. Isn't that crazy? Four years ago this, um, this month, actually. And it really? Aired, it aired four years ago this month. Well, Carmen Carrera came on the show. Uh, Carmen Carrera is a trans model, and she was interested in uh, being the first Victoria's Secrets trans model. And she came on, and in a very awkward and inappropriate moment, I asked her about her private parts. The medication I mean, you still—your your, your private parts are different now, aren't they? I don't want to talk about it because it's, it's, still, it's really personal. And um, I don't know. I I didn't quite understand how offensive that was to someone. Of course, it would be offensive if someone asked me, and clearly it was offensive to Carmen, uh, you know, understandably so. Laverne saved the day and came out, and we had a conversation about it, but it really exploded in the trans community. People were really upset about it, angry with me, and it was mortifying, and, and I was so embarrassed. And later on in the season, Laverne came back, and we— actually sat down and had a long conversation about why that was so inappropriate. And I remember the producers, Laverne, they did not want me to do that. They were like, no, don't talk about it. I said, no, Mm. I want to talk about it. Mm. Tell me your impressions when you saw Twitter exploding with all that venom toward me. I'm just curious what your reaction was. Gosh. Katie, oh, it was it's such a it's it, that was an intense time and you're taking me back. First of all, I want to say that publicists, producers often say don't talk about something in that in that if you talk about an issue that a controversy that it sort of perpetuates right. it. And so but then when you don't talk about it, then there we don't really get a chance to have the educational moment. We don't get to have the the teachable moment is the way you you put it at the time. And so I was so excited that you were willing and open to talk about it. And I I think about the moments I've had, because I think when you're a public figure, you're constantly putting yourself out there and you're going to, quote unquote, make mistakes or get things wrong and upset people. And that's deeply, deeply painful. And I felt that. I felt that even though we weren't talking, I felt like how painful it was for you um, to be going through that and to have the courage to to be on television and to say I made a mistake. And what can we do to rectify that? It's like so hard to do and it's so painful. But I think that, and I, I you saw, saw the speech I made in London at the Attitude Awards about how, that for me feels like this model of how we can go forward. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. But if we can be accountable and be teachable, then we can begin to model that for other people. So when it all happened, though, at the time, what was exciting for me is that my whole life I've been watching um, TV talk shows, I've done presentations about TV talk shows that have, since the 50s and 60s, have having conversations about trans people and reduce, not even necessarily reducing us to surgeries and transition and body parts, but 
what I said on the show is when we focus on that, that becomes the only takeaway because because it sensationalizes our identities. And having watched those interviews over the years, I've never really seen anyone on television push back and say, maybe we should be having a different conversation. Right. So what was really exciting for me is that Carmen and I got the opportunity to, um, to talk back and say, maybe we should be having a different conversation. And so I think when I saw Twitter exploding, it, what was exciting for me is is that because of social media and because of that moment Carmen and I were able to have with you, because you we pre-shot that, so you didn't actually have to air that. Right. That's so. a, that's that's actually a, a a little interesting factoid about the whole situation. Yeah. You know, my producer said, "Do you want to take that out?" Because you know it it made me look foolish and and and, and deservedly so. And I said, "No, keep it in because I think it's um, maybe a question that other people would have asked or at least thought about. And I want to, people to understand that being a trans person is much more than your anatomy. Yeah. You know, it has has very little to do with it. And of course, I've been so educated since Laverne because of my documentary. Think, but I also think the conversation has changed. I feel, I mean, certainly there's there people have, there's still an educational thing that still needs to happen around trans folks. There's so many misunderstandings and misconceptions about us. But I feel like in, with journalists now, it's different. I, I agree. I feel it's really different. And so that moment... Feels really pivotal, and I'm so I'm so grateful to you for that moment. I'm grateful that you didn't edit it out. I'm grateful to the community who pushed back, and I'm sure it was really painful for you the way in which some some folks in my community pushed back. Um, but sometimes that's a necessary part of. It is. I mean, it is interesting when it comes to a social movement, sort of you have to bottle up and release that anger. And I think it's part of the process. But I so appreciated you mentioned that speech that you gave at the Attitudes Inspiration Award last fall. We actually pulled a clip because it was so nice. And Mm -hmm. I was so grateful, Laverne. So let's listen for a second. It is important that we begin to look for models of transformation and encourage that. And when the way we got there with Katie is that I was willing to have conversations with her with love and empathy. I do not believe that we can get to that transformation by publicly shaming people. And so for people who didn't watch these shows and didn't follow this controversy as closely as some did, particularly in the trans community, what do you think are the key lessons that people who are not trans can take away from that back and forth? For people who aren't trans, I mean, I think, I mean, there's so many things. Um, part of part of it, I think, is the love and empathy piece that so often every— what I've learned, especially over the last year, is that not everyone is coming from a, a place of good intentions. I think with Katie, it was clear that you were you did have great good intentions and it just got some things a little off. And so then when the intentions are clear that we can begin to approach people with love and empathy and find ways to communicate our message better. And I'm sure with that approach, I mean, can you feel when you change hearts and minds, do people say to you, you know— Thank you. I under. I mean, I I've been one of those people. Mm-hmm. Can you see their hearts opening up and their minds changing with this approach? I have. I have. And and learning doesn't always happen in the moment. It often it's incremental. But I think. I mean, part of what I get to do as an artist, too, is that when you, as an actor, that's the work of being an actor is having empathy, having empathy for our character, the characters that I play. I can never sort of 
approach a character with like, I don't like this person. I always have to find a way, even if the character's done some reprehensible things, to empathize with her um, and find a way in. So, so that's the work of being an artist is to is to have empathy and love for the characters I play and to hopefully convey that to audiences. And so that's the work that I do as an artist. And so I think that hopefully will translate into the work I do elsewhere. Being an artist is what informs everything that I do. And um, there's a legacy of revolutionary artists, progressive artists, who through the, their work and their activism have proceeded that way. And so I, I have a wonderful legacy to look to for inspiration. Well, we've, we've seen a similar journey of understanding happen around the issue of marriage equality. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding around trans issues is probably a little bit behind where marriage oh, equality yeah. is. But... That was maybe the fastest social change in America than anybody can remember. Part of it had to do with the change in calling it marriage equality as opposed to gay marriage, Mm -hmm. how you talk about it, how you kind of find the way into people Mm -hmm. who are maybe instinctually not as understanding or haven't come across these people as much as, you know, as much as some others. Yeah. Um, Do you think there are things that the trans community— has done or still needs to do in order to make further progress? There's a lot that we have to do. And um, there's fewer trans people than there are gay and lesbian people. Um, the, the way the, where you've alluded to changing the conversation from, quote-unquote, gay marriage to marriage equality, having the conversation differently is key. And that's a lot of what I'm—the work that I'm trying to do is to— shape the conversation in a different way. But, I mean, trans people are under attack right now in in this country. There's, we, I can, I, there's just a, the list of, like, really legislative things that are happening, policy things that are happening around rescinding, you know, guidelines for trans kids, um, anti-trans bathroom bills introduced in state legislatures all over the country, trans folks, um, there's a fight for us to be able to serve openly in the military right now. Um it really it goes on and on and on. There's 2017 yeah, yeah. was the deadliest year on record for trans people in terms of being murdered. Um, our lives are on the line. So a lot of it is about, it's an intersectional issue. So when we talk about trans stuff, and this, it gets complicated because it's not just a gender thing. It's a race thing. It's a class thing. It's an access to education. It's an access to housing and jobs. And so all of those things sort of are diminishing our life. It's sexual assault, all these things. I was going to say, it's, it's a crime thing. Yeah. And I want to talk about intersectionality. I want to talk about sort of being under assault in this Trump administration in the current policy in a second. But before we do that, Laverne, I want to talk about your story, your life story, Mm. because it's so uh, fascinating and I'm sure was harrowing when you were younger. You were born in Mobile, Mobile, Alabama. Alabama. You were raised by a single mom. You never met your dad. Um, I met my dad once. You did? Once. When, when you were how old? Um, I think I was in third grade. I was in third grade. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do. I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> really? I think there's some things, it, the whole circumstances leading up to that that were really, really painful. And I've worked through all that with my mom. And so out of respect to my mother and my family, I can't talk about all those I totally, details. I totally um, understand. But yes, once I met my my um, biological father. You had an, uh, you have an identical twin brother. Uh, yes. And uh, just, just one brother. Just one sibling. Yeah. Correct. And um, I'm just curious what it was like growing up. I think about you in Mobile, Alabama. Mm-hmm. I know you attempted suicide when you were mm-hmm. 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Paint a picture for us, Laverne, oh, about what life was like. I mean, I have a lovely therapist now. She reminds me often that it's both and. So, like, yes, I was bullied. Um, I was chased home from school practically every day, and, and kids wanted to beat me up. I got beaten up a lot. I 
was a very fast runner. I didn't feel safe anywhere. But I was also a really creative kid. I started dancing when I walked. And I begged my mother to put me into dance classes. And finally, when I was in third grade, she found um, a free program where I could study dance. And that I believe that dancing saved my life. I, did, I choreographed dance routines and, like, competed in talent shows all over the Southeast. And ha- there's still trophies in my house um, back in Alabama. My I know mom's you said, house. I know you um, have said it saved your life. Yeah. Being creative and I was a good student. I um, I read constantly. We were walking distance from the uh, Mobile Public Library. So I was at the library all the time reading. I was a, I was a total nerd. Uh, <laughs> is your twin as smart as you are? He's probably smarter. Yeah. Really? He's smarter. My brother's brilliant. He's really, really smart. Um, and by the way, if you haven't watched Orange is the New Black, you can meet <laughs> Laverne's brother He's on that show. He's definitely playing a character, though. My brother is punk rock and got he plays he um defines defines himself as a practicing homosexual who is Negro goth punk rock um and a free black man. He's um he's 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 a musician and an artist and his work is very if, M Lamar is his name M Lamar dot com if people care about his work he really sort of hates he hates that he did Orange Is New Black because people it's so funny because if you Google most um, famous well known trans people there's uh, like before people always want to see what trans people look like before and people have a photo of my brother and then me side by side I'm like that's kind of hilarious <laughs> but they have a photo of him from Orange is the New Black and he doesn't even look like that in real life he wears like eyeliner and he has long hair but that's um, the character he played but on that's the, show. the character he yeah. played yeah my character pre-transition <laughs> but, but, but when did you when did you start struggling with your gender identity I do you I mean do you remember me, it from the very beginning I didn't it wasn't a struggle for me it was a struggle for everybody else I was all I was always feminine. I was always, you know, I really thought that boy there was no difference between boys and girls because everyone was telling me I was a boy and I knew that I was a girl. So I just didn't think there were any differences. And then I there was a therapy moment in third grade. I've talked about this I've talked about this a lot. My third grade teacher, Ms. Ridgeway, called my mother on the phone and said, Your son will end up in New Orleans wearing a dress if you don't get him to therapy right away. So I went to therapy and there was a there was this whole sort of I guess we would call it reparative therapy around my gender um expression at the time that was trying was trying to fix me and up until that time, I didn't think that there was really a difference between boys and girls. I knew that I was being bullied. I knew that people were, um, people called me all kinds of anti-gay slurs. They called me a girl. And I think I've said, said the interesting irony of my life is that before I transitioned, kids called me a girl. And after I transitioned, people call me a man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, my gosh, it was just, it was intense, but it, I feel like it was everyone else's problem. I And then it became, and it's something I internalized. I internalized a tremendous amount of transphobia, and I was like, I can't be this. And it wasn't until I moved to New York and met real trans people that I was able to accept trans people and then accept myself. But it was a problem for everybody else. Leontine Price, my idol, uh, she's an opera singer, and she when she talks about race, she said, it's not, it's not the black people's problem. It's everybody else's problem. And that's really how I see it with, with the gender stuff. And I think for, for for me, I had to sort of get find access to medical care and find ways to survive because it's hard. It's as smart as you think I might be. I was working in a restaurant, a drag queen restaurant before um, Orange is the New Black sort of became a sensation. And this I have was a, in New York. In New York City. And I have a college degree and I was writing, you know, articles for Huffington Post. And I'm kind of a smart chick, but a lot of people wouldn't have hired me. You know, I couldn't really get a job. There's a lot of people who wouldn't have hired me, as brilliant as I might seem. Um, and there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of trans people out there who are brilliant. 
brilliant who can't get jobs because they're trans. And you were inspired, at least in part, by a trans woman named Candace Kane. Yeah. For people in our audience who don't know who she is, can you describe her and tell her tell us the impact she had in your life? Candace Kane. I love Candace Kane. Um, she's a New York City legend, and she's a trans woman, and. A lot of people got to know her on Caitlyn Jenner's reality show, I Am Kate. But before that, in 2007, she became the first openly transgender actress to have a recurring role in a primetime TV show. And that show was Dirty Sexy Money. That was 11 years ago. And that moment made me believe that it was possible to be openly trans and have a career as an actor. I've been st- At this point, I had a degree in dance. I studied acting and dance in college. I had done a number of independent films and been and just been going to acting class every week, you know, and, and turning. I interned to stu- Susan Batson's studio in New York City, and I mopped the floors and answered the phones so I can get acting classes for free. Thank you, Susan. Uh, <laughs> so I had a little scholarship, and so I, it was— being an actor is something I've been. I committed myself to, you know, just and just doing the grind in New York, doing the off off Broadway theater or student films or whatever I could do just to work. And when I saw that moment from Candace, I was like, "This is the moment." And that and I, I sent out postcards. I love this story, by the way. Was this sending out postcards from New York or from Mobile? It was. I was in New York at the okay. time. Okay. So I was already in New York. I went to um, college in New York and um, sent out um, postcards to agents and casting directors, like five hundred. And I was like, Laverne Cox is the answer to all your transgender acting needs because I knew there was sort of a niche for being trans and being an actor. Not a lot of great parts at the time, but there were there was something, mostly sex workers and <laughs> crime victims. Um, it's not funny, but it kind of is. Um, and then the manager that I have now to this day, Paul Halepo, is one of the four meetings I got from that um, those 500 postcards. That's amazing. I mean, that's and, a real lesson, by the way, in ingenuity and persistence and just putting yourself out there yeah. that you sent all these postcards out and you got four meetings from four it. Four meetings. I had a commercial agent for a minute. That didn't work out. But then I got a legit acting agent. Um, Paul Halepo is my agent for many years now. He's my manager. And he saw something in me. And for there were many years I didn't work at all over the 11 years that we've been together. That I'd be like, oh my guys, why has he not dropped me? You know, if, you have an, if you're an agent, you have a client and they're not working. But he just saw something in me and he stuck with me. And it's kind of worked out. Well, <laughs> it, it certainly has. I mean, you did a, a, a number of appearances on Law & Order, I know. Yeah. And then you did some reality shows, some independent mm-hmm. films. You produced a documentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, about, I produced a about, couple documentaries. Uh, yeah, and one one in particular about the lives of, of seven trans children, I believe. Seven trans youth. Um, the time they were between the ages of 12 and 24. I'm so proud of all of them right now. Um, Zoe Luna just had an, her HBO show about her quinceanera. She's, she was 12 when we interviewed her. Shane Hanese has been in a, in a Kenneth Cole ad. Wow. And he got a full scholarship to Columbia at grad school after the T-word. I'm just, oh, I can't. Anyway, all of them are really fantastic, and I'm so proud of all of them. Um, and but think, I mean, I, again, I know, I know I'm kind of like uh, totally fangirling on poor Laverne, but think about what you were able to do for these young people mm-hmm. by helping them adjust, by giving them attention, and by kind of launching their careers. I think what we— I try not to be too arrogant about what I did. I think what we were able to do with Laverne Cosby's Institute, where you can watch the documentary on on YouTube or on on Logo uh, TV, is that we gave them a platform to tell their stories. And then um, with that, what were they able to do on top of that? What I learned, and I I had this conversation with every one of them, that this is an opportunity for you to have a platform. Now it's time to hustle. And what I learned from having done reality TV when I did a show called I Want to Work for Diddy in 2008, and that was... Um, that's directly because of Candace Kane. That was literally the next year because I sort of put myself out there in a new way. I learned that 
reality television was a platform, but then now it was time for me to hustle and to um, really capitalize on that. And so that's what I try to do in a way that's respectful to myself and to the art and what I want to do. But that was what I said to the young people. So then it was on them. But, I mean, let's be honest, giving them a platform change their worlds. I hope so. I hope so. I, I, well, Shane has told me that it has, and a few of the um, young people have told me that it has been transformative for them. So that, that makes me happy. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more of our fascinating conversation with this week's Wonder Woman, Laverne Cox. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in-ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below-market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in-ready home and start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. And now back to our conversation with Laverne Cox. Your big break when most people in this country first clapped eyes on Laverne Cox was when you got the role on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. How did that come about and how has that changed your life? It's funny because right before I booked Orange, I was thinking maybe I was done acting. Maybe I had been a number of independent films. I had done some TV. And I was thinking maybe I was done. I hadn't booked anything for going on a year. You were um, still working at the restaurant. I was still working at um, Lucky Chang's the restaurant every week. And then I got the audition, and it w- I did two scenes, one from the pilot episode of Orange and one from the, uh, episode three, the famous duct tape flip-flops um, scene from season one. Oh, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> because we have a clip from that. Oh. And since you did the perfect uh, segue. I auditioned and... with this scene. All right, yes. well, let's listen to you. We'll just remind people. I made my own couture. Comes here doing carry size 13. Is that duct tape? Metallics are very in this season. I remember that scene so well, Laverne. <clears throat> when you heard about this role, were you just thinking... Oh, God, this is going to be so fantastic. Were you trepidatious? I, you know, I was at an event with my manager, Paul, and he said, I have an audition for you. It's set in a women's prison. You're a hairdresser in a women's prison. I was like, women's prison? Hmm. I was like, that sounds, it sounded really intriguing. He said it was a web series, and this is 2012, so there were no streaming television shows. There were web series. So I was just like, okay, a web series, cool. And then I got the pilot script, and it was brilliant. And um, Gingy Cohen, I was a huge fan of Weeds, like huge. And I love her, by the way. I love her, too. She's the creator um, in the 
the creator, Jimmy Carroll. Of that show. Exactly. And then I um, did the audition, got the part. I was screaming. I remember I was on the street and I started screaming. And I was hopeful that people might watch it, but I was just so excited to be working. I was I dedicated my life to being an actor, and it's a really hard thing to do to be an artist. And so I was just happy to have a job. And then it turned into this thing where, like, episode three was my character's backstory, and Jodie Foster was directing, and that was a dream come true. And um, did you have a moment when you thought, "Wow, this is really clicking. This is this is something special." Season one, it was just a. What I love about season one of our show is that it was so about the work, and I was just so excited to do the work to really that I've been training for all these years. And then there was a moment, I think, episode it was the rap battle scene, episode six or so of season one, and I looked around, and it was a room full of women of all ages and backgrounds and sexual orientations and and I'm in the middle there and I just was like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life I don't know if anybody's gonna watch it or care <laughs> but this is awesome and I didn't honestly think anybody would watch it I knew it was good and special but I just had never seen anything like it. And so I was like, where does this fit in the marketplace, you know? And then it's on Netflix. I was just, my my dream really was, I was like, I hope casting directors watch it and see that I can act and maybe I'll get another job. You know, <laughs> that was my, that for real. If this doesn't work out. That was for real. Well, people didn't think of Netflix as the behemoth that it's become. No. I mean, spending $7 billion a year on content and no. all the rest. But l- let me ask you, since you first appeared and broke through on that show. How do you think opportunities for trans actors have changed? Gosh, it's a it's a mixed bag when I talk to my um, trans fans who are actors. There are more roles than there used to be, and the roles are different. Um, I'm so excited about Ryan Murphy's new show, Pose, that's coming out over the summer. There's six transgender series regulars on that show, all trans women of color, and they're so talented. Um, and what is it about? It's about the ballroom community in New York City in the 1980s. I like that movie Paris is Burning, if you right. saw that. This is about these balls that are uh, sort of competitions where people vogue and people sort of have different categories like realness and face, etc. So it's the sort of drag, trans, LGBTQ balls of color that Madonna's Vogue comes out of that community. And it's really when... Um, our current president was building all these huge buildings, and so the you know New York was changing a lot in the late '80s as well. So it's that that's the backdrop of the of the of pose, which is I'm so excited about it. So that's exciting for for people in the trans community. But how has it been a mixed bag? I th- well, there's a, still a lot of casting directors aren't calling us in for roles that are not trans. Well, that's the thing, right? Um, is the real victory going to be when you don't have to play a trans person, but you get to play a woman? Period. Yeah, I just get to p- play characters, and it doesn't, and the gender identity doesn't matter. I think that is the victory, more opportunities. And I think, but there's so many trans stories that need to be told as well. And so more trans folks directing and writing and working behind the scenes is actually really crucial too. To Pose's credit, there's two two trans writers and there's some trans people directing and working on the crew. Um, a, a show I did on, on CBS called Doubt, we had a trans writer. And I have a show um, in development at ABC now called Spirited um, that is not a trans character and um, that's I'm the lead of. So, um, oh, wow. Great. Hopefully that, that pilot will be in the pipeline. It's but you feel, like you, you feel like you need to have both, both stories of trans people, but also trans people being cast without regard to their gender Absolutely. identity. Absolutely, because if you're right for the part, it shouldn't matter. I've always said if it doesn't involve menstrual cycles or pregnancy, I should be able to play it. And then the question is, does the character become trans when I play the character? I'm As a black actress, whenever I play a character, the character becomes black. And do it, does the character become trans when I play her, even if it's not written that way? Um, so that's an interesting question that we'll so we'll see well and to that point you have 
cisgendered men, that is people who were born as men, playing... Assigned male at birth. Assigned male at birth. And identify as male. Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, Being cast as trans women. Yes. I.e. Jeffrey Tambor on Transparent, although, you know, he may... I.e. Jared Leto, i.e. Eddie Redmayne, who are, you know... um, I was about to say all lovely people, but... (laughs) No, how do you feel about that, though, you know... Um, there is certainly a push now in um, in the trans community and beyond to cast trans people to play trans characters. Trans people need jobs. I've, I said earlier that our unemployment rate is about four times the national average. Um, and Jen Richards, a, a brilliant um, writer, actress, she argues that when, specifically when cisgender men, non-transgender men are cast to play transgender women, that leads to violence against us because it sends the message that she contends that trans women are really men. So Jared Leto beautifully plays this trans character in Dallas Buyers Club and then arrives at the Oscars and Golden Globes with a beard. And so folks, men who find themselves attracted to trans women then see this guy with a beard and it sends this message that trans women are really not women at all, but men. And so she contends that that leads to violence against us. I think the other piece of that is that men who are attracted to trans women need to deal with their internalized homophobia and transphobia. What's been so exciting for me as a trans actress playing a trans character on Orange is the New Black is that people have, um, audience members have not just empathized with the character that I play, but they find themselves empathizing with the actress who plays her. And so there's been so much... I think it's inarguable that there's been so much change because of that part that I got to play and people connecting with this character and then connecting with the actress on a human level. Well, think how much how many people have been educated by Sophia, right? Yeah. I mean, it broke through this whole notion of gender identity and it just got right to the heart of the person, yeah. which can I think is the most persuasive tool possible, right? You have to be able to see people as human beings. And, and I think, it, according to a study from GLAD, 86% of folks in the United States do not know someone trans. And so what what we do in the media is how folks get to know trans folks. Exactly. So it's crucial. It's it's life saving and or, or life threatening if the representation in the media does not accurately and multidimensionally depict who trans people really are. One of the people I I featured in my documentary was Gavin Graham. You can't see right now, but Laverne just kind of made a little prayer sign and and held it up to her face because Gavin is an extraordinary person. Mm -hmm. How did you first get to know Gavin? I, you know, I became aware of his case in... Gosh, and it would have been 2016. Um, I heard, we should I, say, by way of background, by the way, yes. Ga- Gavin came out as transgender in high school. In and Virginia, yeah. His county school board said that he couldn't use the boys' restroom. So apologies for the interruption. but No, that's fine. Um, well, initially he was allowed, and then parents right. found out and said, we can't do this. And every, everything was fine. Gavin was going to the boys' room. No, The kids didn't have any There was no issue. And then the school board finds out and says, no, this can't happen. And they and, had a big hearing, by the way, and just— just before we talk a little more about Gavin, we have a clip from what I thought was one of the most moving moments of, of my documentary is when, by the way, we didn't film it. It was when Gavin spoke before the school mm, board, and there was a whole group of people. And he was, I, I believe, Goose, just you see the 15 years old. Yeah. And he was so composed and so extraordinary. Let's listen to what he said. Yes. I've been aware of who I was since I was a very young kid, and it's taken me a very long time to be able to be myself and be okay with that. The person I am now, being able to have all of my rights in full, is such a 
massive dynamic difference from the person I was just last summer. I would like to say too that if the evidence said that me using the boys room would be catastrophic, I would not be advocating for myself. Regardless of my personal emotions over this issue, I look only at the facts, as one should in an issue that requires separation of church and state and feelings and state. That clip makes me cry every time I hear it, Laverne. And so you heard about Gavin's situation. Did you reach out to him? I did, actually. I, re- I My friend Chase Strangio, who works at the ACLU, the lawyer at the ACLU, is handling Gavin's case. And it was a major, it was going to be a major decision. It was the fir- it would have been the first time the Supreme Court would have heard an issue about transgender rights. And so I sent him a video message, and then we arranged to, me- to meet Gavin. It was like a week after the Grammys, a year ago, I remember. And I just... I was moved by everything I had read about him and the videos I'd seen about him. And then he's when I met him, he's so smart and so calm and composed. I, it, it's amazing. I freak out. I mean, I just when all this attention is on me and I and I get such anxiety and he seems so calm. And his mom um, is amazing. I, I think it's over 50% of trans kids when they have fam- uh, family support, their lives are completely different in terms of um, positive outcomes for them being who they are. Because so, we should just mention how high the suicide rate is among yeah. trans children and yeah. trans youth. Yeah. It's over uh, over 41% of trans people have attempted suicide. And it's I think it's 50, 50% of trans youth have, have attempted suicide. And so it's I think sometimes people want to sort of suggest that we're mentally ill, but if you live in a culture that tells you constantly and sends messages to you constantly that you are mentally ill, that you are a deviant, that you shouldn't exist, and that every message you're receiving constantly from everyone around you and from the media is that you shouldn't exist and that you are a pariah, it is really hard to love yourself. It is really hard to think that you have a right to exist. And that's what I want. That's what I want trans kids to know, that you have a right to exist and that you're anointed, that you are beautiful and that you're here for a reason and that you have to find a way to survive um, so that you can fulfill that reason um, for being here. The Supreme Court decided not to hear Gavin's case. Well, they decided not to hear Gavin's case because the current administration, the Justice Department, rescinded the Obama-era guidelines. Right around how transgender kids should be treated in school. And so when the um, Justice Department rescinded those guidelines, then there, there was, was no case. A, there was no case, basically. What did those guidelines say? The guy, So the, basically a lot of people thought they were about bathrooms, right? So they did say that, you know, trans kids should be able to use a bathroom that is consistent with their gender identity. But it also talked about um, preferred name. It talked about um, how other kids should treat them in school. So it was a, it was a whole host of guidelines. So it was and really protections, about really. Making, tra- making sure that trans kids were safe in schools and that they were treated in a way that was respectful for them so they could learn. Education is the reason I'm sitting here. And, I, and people should have safe schools. And that was just the first, I think, thing that the Trump administration did that has started to erode the progress that had heretofore been made before he was elected. Yeah, not just for trans people, but for across the board. The Justice Department, even though people have to remember that the current administration has not been very successful legislatively, but in terms of the Justice Department, they've been very successful rolling back mandatory minimums, so many uh, um, progressive things that the Obama administration um, did. So we got to continue to resist. Well, in fact, back in July— Uh, President Trump tweeted that transgender individuals will not be allowed to serve in the U.S. military. Mm -hmm. Has that been implemented? So, um, Well, remember, that was so crazy because ostensibly President Trump had 
cleared this with his military leaders, but then they said he'd never talked to them yeah, about it. Yeah, ostensibly meaning he didn't. Right. And then suddenly, <laughs> and then that changed, right? It's so correct? after after the tweet, the the I guess Department of Defense got some policy together to basically try to ban John Trans people. And now, oh, mind you, Trans people have just been able to serve openly Barely, and it was something that like Obama it started was, in 2015. I yeah, believe. but luckily at this point, two judges have said that this is unconstitutional, and there's no reason to ban trans people. I think it's probably going to end up at the Supreme Court. So and in the meantime, what's happening to transgender people who are currently serving in the military? It's, it's my, from my understanding, they should be treated with kindness and respect. But again, it sends a message when the leader of the free world. I feel that like I, I use that term loosely now. Um, Let the record. Said, show there's some air quotes <laughs> there happening, air quotes. Um, says that you shouldn't have a right to serve your country. And what other things have happened in the last year, Laverne, that have really kind of put trans people in the crosshairs? Um, I think over 20 states have passed about 50 pieces of legislation that basically criminalize trans people using the bathroom that is consistent with their gender identity. 50 pieces of legislation. A number of those pieces of legislation have been struck down, notably in Texas. But a lot of people think that um, HB2 in North Carolina, a lot of people thought that that was repealed. It actually wasn't. They basically made a, a new bill that basically had institutes the same kind of discrimination against trans people because they wanted to basically get their corporate folks back. And so a lot of people think that that's settled in North Carolina. It actually isn't. The ACLU and other organizations are still, I think it's Lambda Legal, are still suing the state of North Carolina because they're trying to criminalize trans people going to the bathroom still. Well, in fact, still. this has had a profound impact on politics. The governor of North Carolina who signed the infamous bathroom ban legislation. He's not with us anymore. Yeah, he lost his race. <laughs> well, he's lost his race. I think in, he's still alive. <laughs> I think he's still around, but he's no longer governor. Exactly. Um, largely as a result of the backlash on this issue. Mm-hmm. And last year, we saw Danica Rome, I think that's how you pronounce her name, yes. in Virginia be the yes. first openly trans person elected and seated in a U.S. State House. Yay, Virginia. In the, yeah, in the Senate. Andrea yeah. Jenkins uh, was the first openly transgender black woman to be elected to public office research, in the yes. U.S. <laughs> um, she was elected to the Minneapolis City Council. Yes. And I've now met Ch- Andrea. I've met Andrea. We did a panel um, when I was in Minnesota like a couple years ago. And now Chelsea oh. Manning has filed to run for Senate in the state of Maryland. Been more of a that. controversial uh, character. Yes. Having nothing to but do still, with her but status. But still, I mean, I think it says a lot that we've seen this happen. And that that must be a positive and a year that's been full of a lot of negatives. Well, I think what has happened because of the current administration is that a lot of folks um, of various backgrounds are choosing to run for office and are winning. And that, I think if, the, if there's anything positive that has come out of um, this current administration is that folks have woken up. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks got complacent under my beloved President Obama. I love him and I miss, I, we miss you. Uh, <laughs> we miss you, Obamas. Um, I think a lot of folks got very complacent and didn't realize that um, a lot of basic civil liberties were at stake. And I think that is very clear now. The last time I checked, and I'm sure the number's higher, 11,000 women were running for office. Mm. Uh, And I think that brings us to sort of the Me Too movement. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think of this movement, Laverne, if you believe it is intersectional enough uh, that it What does intersectional mean, Kate? So it— 
it's really talking about race. It's talking about gender. It's talking about gender identity, uh, not just white women in Hollywood and or beyond even. And and that if you think it's expansive enough. So what are your thoughts? I think we can always be more intersectional. We can always um, include more people. I should say women of color, really. Yeah, I mean, intersectionality really— for people, of, I don't just experience the world as a trans woman. I experience the world as a black person, and as a, and and I, I have multiple identities. And in having a social movement, it's funny as I've, I've been doing a lot of rereading of bell hooks and a lot of black feminists from, you know, the seventies and eighties, and and really for over thirty years, there have been um, women of color, um, queer women have been critiquing um, a lot of second wave feminism that you know thirty years ago, black feminists were like, we need to expand this idea of woman. And we cannot um, use biological essentialism to have conversations about women, that we have to be inclusive. So that conversation's been happening for a really long time. I told you she was smart. (laughs) I never doubted it. I mean, I don't think anyone can hear her and and doubt how well-informed, well-read you are on these issues. I mean, it's unbelievable. But anyway, to— But but, so that conversation's been happening for a really long time. And, I mean, we just—I think what we have to look at, I mean, with Weinstein, for example, I remember all the— these actresses came out and said, you know, that he had, you know, assaulted him and done the things that he's accused of doing. First person he challenged was Lupita Nyong'o, a black woman. When he, all, all these other women, he didn't say anything. He didn't say that I didn't do it. He, but the first person he challenged was was Lupita Nyong'o, and I think there. This can't be a coincidence. Her blackness can't be a coincidence. I noticed when some trans women have come forward and said that they have been sexually assaulted, there's been a different tenor in terms of the ways in which they've been believed as opposed to other uh, women who are not trans. It's it's all very very tricky because there's a lot of there's a lot of trauma. I think when we're talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment, I think it's really really important to talk about the the healing that has to happen if you've been a victim or survivor. And it's one of I think the worst things that can happen to someone, if not the worst. Um, and so all the healing that has to happen and and um, what's exciting is that um, I think I've been rereading, you know, um, some of my bell hooks and talking back. She says one of the most useful tools that women have, and it's not just women who've been um, victims of sexual assault and harassment, is, is, is our voice to be able to speak up and to speak out. And so it's amazing that that, I think we were just, the country was just ready for that. But um I think we still need to, um, and it's not just because I, and I, I, it's not just about including trans women, including women of color, including folks with disabilities or folks who are incarcerated, including all these folks. But it's like, what does it mean to have these folks in leadership positions and in decision making roles? I'm finding myself. Um, I'm very blessed to be in the position I'm in, but I'm trying to be critical of it, and I'm trying to really think about all the folks out there who don't have the platform I have, and what do they need, and what would they want me to say when I'm in in these positions? And so much of it is about having not just the tokenized right. Hollywood trans woman, Laverne Cox, in in, in positions um, and at seat with seats at the table, but having diverse and, and other folks who don't have the same privileges I have. Well, it seems to me that, you know, we have to start moving from outrage to policy changes and putting systems in place and also, obviously, attitudes. Uh, Sometimes I think laws precede attitudes. If you Mm -hmm. look at the civil rights movement, right? I mean, it wasn't a popular thing to, 
enact certain pieces of legislation, but it was the right thing, and then attitudes followed. And, and Somewhat. I mean, I think well, if you look yeah, at the, yeah. the civil—that's a really good example, though. We had the um, voter, Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act um, that were passed, and then black folks that did not end racism in right. America, ironically. Right. You know, black folks are incarcerated at <laughs> no, crazy that, rates that, that's and definitely, profiled by police, etc. That's for sure, but I think if sometimes if, if leaders wait for public— uh, sentiment to be on their side, that sometimes they'd be waiting for a very long time to at least take the first step of enacting legislation that's, mm-hmm. that is hopefully, eventually, one day, fingers crossed, going yeah. to change hearts and minds. But where should we go from here? Um, I think it's been so extraordinary to see people being able to express their themselves, use their voices, exhibit their outrage. But at some point, do we need to then take it to the next step? And well, in Hollywood, by the way, there is this initiative Time's called up. Time's Up mm-hmm. um, that may right. be a part of moving forward on these issues. But but, but what are they going to do other than raise money for uh, a legal defense fund for, you know, I mean, I, and, and not just Hollywood, but how can policies and change and how can we put systems in place so that it is better for that woman who's working on an assembly line at a factory in Iowa? That's part of it. Rosa Clemente, who's been doing a lot of work around Puerto Rico, we have to remember that Puerto Ricans, um, the island is still mostly without power and without clean drinking water. She reminded me when we met that, that protests are important, but then we have to do the organizing after the protests. And so the organizing is a, is about policy and hopefully systemic shifts. Um, so I was at a, a Time's Up meeting this past week, and I and so the Legal Defense Fund is one of the things that Time's Up is doing. There's other thing, other work too that's 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 on the horizon that that you, you will find out more about later. That it's about those policy shifts. And I think really it's how do we make workplaces safe for everyone? Anti-sexual harassment policies have existed in I think ninety percent of um, organizations for a very long time. But so much of that is about not getting sued, but it doesn't change the culture in those organizations. So we have to be able to change the culture and then who's in power. A lot of folks think that it's about having diverse leadership so that we have more women in leadership positions and more people of color and just more diversity. And so, 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 and hopefully that can begin to change the culture so that it's not okay to interrupt women at meetings. And so it's not okay to make— They call that heat What is oh, it? Oh, no, that's mansplaining. Well, I, I'm doing this whole thing for National Geographic, and one of my hours is on gender inequality in Hollywood and Silicon Valley and beyond. Mm-hmm. And there's something called heat-peating, and that means if you're at a meeting and a woman has a suggestion and everybody's like, yeah, 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 kind of blows her off, then the man says it. And you see, like, there's this that's thing called heat-peating. There's this thing called heat-peating that men do where a woman makes a point and everyone ignores her, and then the guy Thank you for the, repeats you. the same thing and Thank people listen. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. For the illustration, Brian. <laughs> but anyway, but but I do think but that, that those kinds of cultural shifts, and so that, so that not that we're in these things are important. I think sometimes pe- people think that liberals get sort of you know want to police language and and want to say you can and can't say this. It's not about that. It's about how do we begin to change the culture because those cultures influence policies and influence way, the ways in which people are treated and if they feel safe or not and in I a workplace or on the street or there may be sexual harassment policies, but I don't think they've been. T- taken seriously. I think that when they have, like, diversity training or sexual harassment awareness that most people just roll their eyes. And now I think those times have changed. But do you think that more men should be invited into the conversation? Because I think right now, at this juncture, 
I think there are a lot of men who are so fearful. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of them believe, like, we need to spend this time listening. But at some point, we need men to join forces with women and not just listen. So do you feel like they've been shut out of the conversation too much? I think we have to be really careful not to foreground men's voices. I think we're talking about white cisgender men's voices in a, in a, in a movement that needs to be about women coming to voice and women having a space so that we can't foreground those voices. But men, we can't really topple the patriarchy without um, men being engaged in that. I think um, my friend Matt McGorry does so much work around Black Lives Matter and around having conversations with white people around their own racism. And so I think men need to be having conversations with each other. And I know some incredible guys who are doing that work. Um, list, of course, listening to to women of all different backgrounds, trans, you know, pe- women with disabilities, listening and then having conversations with other men and saying, and saying this is no longer acceptable to talk about women in this way and to have conversations and then what can we do to change policies, to change hearts and minds, and then how can we interrogate ourselves? I think a lot of men, too, what I've come to realize, this movement has been really intense for me. I got to, um, I can't believe I'm going to talk about this because I'm not maybe ready to fully talk about it, but I got to confront a man that I'd had a sexual encounter with that the encounter was consensual, but then something happened that wasn't consensual. And I was able to recently... recently confront him about that. And what was interesting for me in the confrontation is that he had no idea, he had no idea that his behavior was predatory, that he didn't have consent. And I I think so often the idea of consent is something that, 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 that men aren't really clear about. And I... I'm very clear that what happened was not consensual and it was not okay, and I was able to assert that to him. But that's a different kind of conversation. What does consent look like? Uh, um, a woman I know named, um, um, who, who teaches um, sex ed in New York, and she teaches kids. She's having conversations, you know, in middle school, really early on, about what consent is and looks like. And we have to be really careful about the messages we're sending to our young people of all genders about what consent is. And so those kinds of conversations men should be having with themselves, with um, with each other, and then ultimately with women and then listening more. And then we all have to be engaged in changing the culture. Is it just too early to kind of push that, as you say, foreground their voices? No, we should not be foregrounding their voices. I don't, I mean, I, I mean, this, and I love men. And by the way, what is I love foregrounding men? mean exactly? Foregrounding so that we, because it's the problem is that for far too often we've listened to men and not listened to women. We, we're at a point now when women, when pe- women are finally being believed and something. And heard. And heard. And we have to continue that. We ha- That doesn't mean that we're, that doesn't mean I, because I, I love men. It doesn't mean we hate men. That doesn't mean that we want to sort of demonize men, but we have to foreground the voices and experiences of women. And then I think too, whether it, it's not just women who are experiencing sexual assault either. Um, Anthony Rapp, we have to remember, came forward with some um, really important information about a well-known actor that we all know. And um, Terry Crews and other other men have come forward and, and said that they too have been, and I know a lot of men in my, in just personally, who've um, experienced sexual assault. So um, it's a conversation that we all need to have, but then there's, there's something about power and accountability. I think for so long it was just okay to do this stuff. And time's up. I feel like we should also just talk briefly about pay inequality. Mm-hmm. You know, a big story. Uh, this will air uh, a couple of weeks after this whole incident, but that got a lot of attention is Michelle Williams versus Mark Wahlberg. And <clears throat> I found that 
really upsetting, but also so interesting on multiple levels because I think, at per usual, Michelle Williams was trying to be super accommodating and saying, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll, you know, skip my holiday, I'll, right? I'll go to Italy over Thanksgiving yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And then she had the same representation as Mark Wahlberg, who got paid $1.5 million. Now, Brian told me earlier that there was some stipulation in his contract that he had approval over the replacement actor, blah, blah, blah. But the fact of the matter is, I, I mean— Well, the a, man held it up so that he could get a bunch of money, and the woman said, oh, yeah, sure, I'm happy to be accommodating and, you know, do this whenever you want and get paid a 1000 bucks." Which I think speaks to— Less than $1,000, $80 a day per diem. Which, which, <laughs> which, which speaks to, I think, women and our, our discomfort in speaking up and demanding things and trying to be liked and being the good person uh, versus Mark Wahlberg, who, of course, eventually gave the money to the Time's Up movement and to the Legal Defense Fund there. But, I mean, why does this keep happening? And how do you usher in a major paradigm shift for that? There's so many issues there. And I, I can, what I, when I hear that, I know I can relate to, especially being still feeling new to the in- entertainment industry and feel like I'm just so lucky to be here. That and you I'm don't like, want to do anything to piss people off. And I don't want to do anything to piss anybody off. So I'm like, what do you need? And always trying to arrive and, and be easy to work with and, and, and agreeable and never difficult. And so that's something I really re- deeply relate to. Gosh, I think there's so many issues. There's so much that we probably don't even know about in terms of the contract negotiations. I'm excited that the money's going to Time's Up. Um, I'm excited that that's happening. Um, I think Michelle Michelle Williams is a brilliant, brilliant artist. Her body of work is so compelling. Her statement around this has been absolutely just magnanimous and inspiring. I I just love, I love her. (laughs) I don't know her personally, but I love the way that she's gone about all this. But part of this is, I think, women starting to become accustomed to owning some power. Yeah. You know, and and not being so worried and being able to demand things and not be afraid what that says about them, right? When it comes to, I think it was Susie Orman who said that we need to talk about money more in general so that we are having conversations. How much are you making? You know, so that we should be openly having conversations be about more transparency. what are other people getting, and then so what should I be asking for? So, the, so that's part of it. But there's something I really get that desire to be like, what do you need? You know, they were reshooting the film because of um, the yeah. actor who they needed needed to um, Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey, it's pretty widely known. I know, but I don't. I don't know I don't, for every reason. But like, so. I get it where Michelle was coming from. Let me do whatever I can. I get it. I oh, really no, do. Oh, it's laudatory in a way. On the other hand, it's like, why should we be pleasers? And why should we be so helpful? Or and maybe, maybe the men should may- be more helpful. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, is that a good thing, a bad thing? It's so confusing. Oprah talked about how, often talks about her, her how her life changed when she let go of her disease to please. And I'm I'm still learning that. Um, but really choosing, then Brene Brown says, um, her boundary mantra is choose discomfort over resentment. So that we're setting boundaries and, and um, not being in a space of like constantly wanting to please, but... Um, um, so that we can assert ourselves and feel and understand our value. I, I don't. I don't know Michelle personally. I, I think she. I. I don't know her, but I think she knows her value. With I think four Oscar nominations and this body of work. But um, she's just not a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in closing, <laughs> right? Oh, Katie. No, but you know what I mean. She's like. I mean, she's a mensch. Yeah, she's a mensch. She's a mensch. Anywho. Um, 
Are there other projects you're working on that you can oh, talk gosh. about? Oh, Freak Show, right? Freak Show is out now. Uh, Freak Show is in theaters and on demand. It's a beautiful um, um, movie set in a high school about a young um, kid named Billy Bloom who is kind of gender non-binary, likes to dress in fantastic costumes at school and gets bullied and and ends up running for homecoming queen. <laughs> um, and it's a really beautiful story. I have a teeny tiny part in it. Trudy Styler directs, and um, Bette Midler has a, a wonderful role in it. So folks can, um, I think, an L.A. and New York Sea Freak show now are on demand. It's You can just get it anywhere. It's fantastic. I love that movie. Um, and, and you're a else? model for oh, Beyonce. Yeah. I model. Oh, my God. That's so can't believe it. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, Beyonce chose me to um, be one of the faces of her uh, autumn winter campaign for Ivy Park. The posters are still in top shops all over the world. I still get. Um, it's an active wear line. It's an active wear line. It's her athleisure line. It's amazing. I was an Ivy Park fan even before I was modeling for it. Uh, thank you, Beyonce. <laughs> That's yeah. you. Are you and Beyonce like this? I just did the thing where your fingers are together, like you're super tight. No, I've met Beyonce once. She was I'm about to give birth when we shot the. Um, the ad campaign. So I've only met her once. We're not tight like that. Um, you know, I, you've got to be a lot more Hollywood. You got to say, "Oh, we're we're very very close. We've met." I don't. I, <laughs> I, you know, I I'm go kidding. through that whole thing of like, should I be more Hollywood? I'm just going to be Laverne. No, I'm gonna I be think in the people truth. like. I think your <laughs> no, honesty Ryan's is kidding. actually very refreshing. But um, she she's so. I mean, I've interviewed her a, a couple of times. I haven't seen her for years. But mm-hmm. in the early days of Destiny's Child, and then when mm-hmm. she started on her solo career. I had the the pleasure of interviewing her, and I just I just adore her. I think she is so great and re- so talented. It's ridiculous. Queen B, she's still the queen of, of us all. I have a few queans, and Beyonce is one. So I'm, I remain a ginormous fan. Who's your other queen? Um, oh my god, I have many queens: Oprah, um, Leontine Price, Viola Davis, um, a few. When you look ahead at this year, you know what what is. What are your hopes and dreams? It was funny you were saying you wanted that role, and a continuing role that one year, and then Orange is the New Black yeah. popped up. It, what are your goals? I want to get better at being an artist and being an actress. I, I, I got to work on, um, I'm going to be in the next season of Orange, and they wrote some really beautiful material for me, and I... I want to get better at what I do. I think being an actor is 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 very difficult, and doing it well um, is difficult. But it's also a lifelong pursuit and something that you can get better, get older, and get better at. So I want to continue to expand. I have a new show called Glam Masters that's coming out on Lifetime. It's a it's a competition reality show for makeup artists. Um, Kim Kardashian West is one of the executive producers. I'm a co-executive producer as well and I'm also a host and judge. And we're looking for the next um, big breakout star in the beauty industry. It's gonna, it's on Lifetime. It's premiering February 28th. I'm so proud of it. I've seen a lot of the episodes and the contestants are incredible. You really understand that makeup isn't just, I'm not wearing makeup today, thank God. I love having my makeup free days. But that makeup is not just about looking pretty, that it's an art. And these um, the makeup artists we have on the show really show you that and the challenges that we give them um, illustrate that. And it's fun. We had so much fun. So you're not only doing all your acting stuff, you're like turning into a mogul, Laverne. <laughs> 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 I'm trying to do, continue to do what I love and do, and I love a lot of different things. And so I'm trying to sort of go with the passion and be in a space of, of, of joy and multidimensionality. I'm not just one thing. And so I, I'm getting to explore all of these, these different sides of myself and showing 
the world that they can do that as well. I think that's great. Well, I just, uh, you know, I adore you, Laverne. I adore and you, I'm so, um, so happy that you came by on a Sunday, no less, <laughs> so to nice visit with really us. Really nice really. to meet you. Thanks Good to meet for you doing too. This. this has been so much fun. I can't wait to see how you edit this because we talked a lot. We did talk a lot. <laughs> a big thank you this week to the Invisible Studios in L.A. for today's recording and our usual thanks to the lovely and talented Gianna Palmer for producing the show. We love Gianna, and we love Jared O'Connell for mixing it. Oh, gosh, I don't want to leave anyone out. We love Nora Ritchie, our assistant producer, and Allison Bresnick on social media, Emily Bina over at Katie Couric Media. We love you, too. And Beth, my assistant. I can't forget her. We love her a lot because she puts up with me every day. Beth's a Wonder Woman in her own right. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. I would say I love you, Mark, but I don't even know you. And Brian and I are the show's executive producers. Talk to you next week, and thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.